chapter 7, verses 31 to 37. Then Jesus left the vicinity of Tyre and went through Sidon, down to the Sea of Galilee, and into the region of the Decapolis. There some people brought to him a man who was deaf and could hardly talk, and they begged Jesus to place his hand on him. After he took him aside, away from the crowd, Jesus put his fingers into the man's ears. Then he spit and touched the man's tongue. He looked up to, he up to heaven and with a deep sigh said to him, Ephatha, which means be opened. At this, the man's ears were opened. His tongue was loosened and he began to speak plainly. Jesus commanded them not to tell anyone. The more he did so, the more they kept talking about it. People were overwhelmed with amazement. He has done everything well, they said. He even makes the deaf hear and the meat speak. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Andrew. We're continuing to look at the Gospel of Mark, one of the four Gospels that begin the New Testament. And the Gospels are a record. Gospel, by the way, means good news. A good record of Jesus and everything he came to do, what he said, how he interacted with people, what he was all about. And as we've been going through Mark, we've seen Jesus teach and heal, but also gather together a group, his disciples, who are going to be the foundation of his church. And he spends much of his time teaching them, preparing them to be the foundation of the church. We've seen in the last couple of Sundays that Israel has noticed Jesus. He was predominantly in the north of Israel, around the Sea of Galilee. That's where the disciples were recruited. The crowd started to come out in response to his teaching. And we saw that Jerusalem, the capital, the kind of center of Israel, Israel's leadership, Israel's elite, has sent a group of people, Pharisees and teachers of the law, to confront Jesus, to challenge him and the way that he is teaching and what he is teaching his disciples about the cleanliness laws. And Jesus' response is to say that they have completely missed the point. They've missed the point of why God created a holy people, Israel. They have turned it into a matter of cleanliness of pots and pans, nullifying God's word is how Jesus said it. Whereas their job, the job of God's people, is to witness to the world God's goodness. And so we saw last week, Jesus leads his disciples out of Israel, out of the Holy Land, into what from, through Jewish eyes, would seem to be the unclean, unholy, Gentile world. And he goes north, out of Israel to the coastline, the Mediterranean coast, to Tyre and the area of Sidon. And that's where we pick it up now. So last week we saw him in Tyre healing uh, the daughter of a Gentile woman who put her faith in him. And that's where the story picks up. Then Jesus left the vicinity of Tyre and went through Sidon. So then, this is after his encounter with the, the Gentile woman who puts her faith in him and has her daughter healed. Went through Sidon down to the Sea of Galilee and into the region of the Decapolis, which means ten cities. So he's north of Israel. If you think of Israel is on the eastern edge of the Mediterranean. He's gone north onto the Mediterranean coast, and now he comes back down south to the Sea of Galilee and to the east of Galilee, 
outside of Israel, the uh, eastern shore of the Sea of Galilee was actually Gentile. So he's now east of Israel. And if you look on the, the map, he must have traveled down the coast of the Mediterranean coast. It struck me as I was reading this, as I was thinking about this, I've actually been to that area. I was on a kibbutz for a while on the coast, and it is gorgeous. I mean, it's all beaches. It's beautiful. The Mediterranean is lovely. And Jesus and his disciples, they must have walked at least 30 miles down that coastline to get to where this says they go. It strikes me as odd. I have never seen a picture or an image, a painting, a story, any reference to Jesus on a beach. Have you? Can you imagine Jesus body surfing, frolicking in the waves, chilling on the beach with his disciples? I mean, he must have done it. It's hot there. If you're walking down the, the beach, you'd probably go in the water. Why is that? Why do we never see Jesus chilling on a beach? I don't know. It's a big lack. Some of you who are artists or creative, there's a hole there. There's a, there's a place there for a picture of Jesus chilling. Anyway, he goes east of the Sea of Galilee. He goes to the Decapolis. These are ten um, Gentile cities. In verse 32, there, this is east of the Galilee, some people brought to him a man who was deaf and could hardly talk, and they begged Jesus to place his hand on him. So people are clearly aware of who Jesus is. Remember, this is outside of Israel. And yet they've heard his name, and they know that he is a healer, and they bring this man to be healed. After he took him aside, away from the crowd, Jesus begins to heal him. It's kind of odd, though. This is a repeated theme throughout Mark. It's so repeated that uh, theologians call this the messianic secret. Time and time again, when Jesus does something, performs a miracle or heals somebody, he tells the person, don't speak about this. Notice here, he takes the man away to heal him. Why he does that? Well, it's only speculation. The, the Bible doesn't tell us, and a lot of people have a lot of different ideas. But it seems as if Jesus was trying to avoid becoming a spectacle, becoming, uh, you know, a traveling salesman or a rock star. His primary goal in Israel was to teach his disciples. And as soon as they recognize him as the Messiah, when Peter puts his faith in him, he goes straight to the cross. And the point seems to be that Jesus came with a primary mission, and he stuck to it. He is going to create the foundations of the church. He did not want to be this famous miracle worker. He wanted that for his disciples. So let's look at this healing. Jesus put his fingers into the man's ears. Then he spit and touched the man's tongue. By the way, this is not a typical healing. In fact, it's kind of disgusting. Why would Jesus have done this? Well, remember what he's doing. He's teaching his disciples. They are good, pious Jewish men. He is taking them outside of the Holy Land, outside of Israel, into the Gentile world from the, from the, 
from the position and the perspective of pious Jews, Gentiles were dogs. You know, dogs eat trash and filth, and Gentiles would have been considered unclean. Just to enter a Gentile house or a Gentile town would make you unclean. To eat with a Gentile would be unthinkable. And yet here is Jesus touching, getting intimate, sharing spit with this man. If it's disgusting to us, it would have been absolutely shocking and horrifying to these uh, Jewish disciples. So what is he up to? What we've seen from his encounter with the Pharisees, from his encounter with the Gentile woman, and now in this encounter, that Jesus is breaking down barriers. The gospel is not just for Israel. Jesus is not just the Messiah of Israel. Jesus is Lord of all. And the gospel is the gospel, the good news, for everyone, for the whole world. As we saw last week, in Christ there is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male or female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And the verse goes on, if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. So we saw last week, he's breaking down barriers, but he's doing more than that. That last verse, this is from Paul's letter to Galatians, if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. Abraham's seed, the descendants of Abraham, are the Jewish people. That's where they come from, from Abraham. God made the covenant with Abraham and promises Abraham that he will bless not only his descendants, but he will bless the entire world through his descendants. In fact, you can find in the promise the promise of the Messiah. And so what Jesus is showing us here it's not just leaving Israel, he's showing the disciples, it's not just leaving Israel and condescending to share the blessing with them. He is showing the Gentiles, that is non-Jews, are now part of the people of God. Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise, the promise God made to Abraham. He is demonstrating to them and to us that is now all people who can become, through Christ, holy people, people of God, part of the family. And that's what this passage, I think, is all about. Jesus is showing that the gospel is not limited to the Jewish people, that the gospel breaks down barriers between people, all kinds of people, and includes all kinds of people in the promises made to Abraham. So how should we think about the relationship of Christians and Jewish people? You know, I don't know if you're aware of this, but there is a fair amount of tension that continues to this day. During the 90s, when the Soviet Union collapsed, there were a lot of Russian Jews who came to America. A lot of them came to New York. Uh, out in the Rockaways, there was a whole community. And when I was an intern, uh, one of my tasks was to help a Russian pastor start a church amongst these immigrants. 
he was a, a Jew who had converted to Christianity, and he was very successful in welcoming uh, refugees from Russia, Jewish refugees. And he created several churches and several communities, helping people learn language, learn English, and helping them adapt to American life. And in fact, he was so successful that regularly Orthodox Jews would protest outside the church. And their complaint was that these Christians were stealing Jews, converting them into Christianity. And they would protest with placards, very vociferous. Whenever I visited, I had to push my way through a crowd to get to the service. There is a tension between the Jewish people and Christian people. And yet here Jesus is saying we're all one family. How should we think about our relationship as family members? Well, Paul, the Apostle Paul, a Jewish Pharisee who becomes a Christian, and actually his whole ministry was to Gentile people, he says this in Romans. I do not want you to be ignorant of this mystery, brothers and sisters, so that you, ne you may not be conceited. Israel, it's talking about the Jewish people, Israel has experienced a hardening in part until the full number of the Gentiles has come in. And in this way, all Israel will be saved. The Jewish people, Israel, according to this, has been hardened. It's talking about the heart. Hardened in a way that makes it difficult to receive the gospel. But that, that is a temporary thing. There will be a time when all God's people when all the Gentiles have been gathered in and all of Israel will be gathered in and that will be a sign that Christ's ministry, his mission has been completed. And by the way, you know there's a, uh, an organization, Jews for Jesus, who uh, they call themselves Messianic Jews. They've got a huge presence in New York and an increasingly large presence in Israel. If you start seeing large numbers of Jewish people becoming Christians, and I think that is a promise here, look out. That will mean Jesus' ministry is coming to an end. Things are going to change. That's all I'm going to say on that one. Verse 34. He looked up to heaven and with a deep sigh said to him, Ifatha, which means be opened. So Jesus is performing a healing miracle here. This is a miracle. But notice, he looks up to heaven. This healing is not some kind of earth magic, some kind of occult incantation. It's not some kind of natural earth cure or medicine. The source of the healing here in this miracle is heaven. The healing power of God is being called on by Jesus to heal and remedy this man's ills. And that's important. Remember, he is doing this for his disciples. He's teaching them what it means to be a disciple. He's showing them that there is nothing particularly magical about the person, the humanity of Jesus. He 
as a human being, looks to heaven to heal this man. And therefore, this healing power is God's power, divine power. And therefore, is accessible to people of faith. Jesus here is putting his faith in divine power, and the man is healed. He is demonstrating this to his disciples, who will become the Christian church. Therefore, any faithful Christian who puts their trust in God, calls on the power of God in heaven, can heal just as he is doing here. This is not magic. This is faith. Faith in God. And therefore, the disciples have access to this power. As we see, if you read the book of Acts, the history of the early church, they do exactly this, call on God in power, and heal people. It means that the Christian church can do the same. The leaders of this church, the elders of this church, periodically we go and pray for somebody to heal them. James' letter in James 5 tells people to come to the elders and the prayer of a faithful man will heal them. It's exactly what Jesus is doing here. Not magic, not incantations and spells, faith in God's power. And it means that any one of you, any Christian, who puts their faith in God's power is capable of miracles, is capable of healing people in God's name, not your own name. What is a miracle? A miracle is the future breaking into the present. In the future, Jesus will be Lord of all. His kingdom, his everlasting kingdom, will include everyone and everything. And in that future, in that future kingdom, when, King, when Jesus is Lord of all, there'll be no more suffering, there'll be no more sickness, there'll be no more tears. In fact, the promise is every tear will be wiped away. And so when the king shows up in the person of Jesus, it is not surprising that the kingdom shows up with him. Miracles are the future kingdom revealing itself, breaking into this dark world. We get a glimpse of what's going to happen. And when we put our faith in that future, in God, when we put our faith in Jesus, when we call him our Lord, when we pray in his name, all this power, these miracles, the ability to heal and address the ills of the world are made available to us. Bifatha, which means be opened. Notice the simplicity and the directness of Jesus' prayer here. It's not a big explanation of what the problem is. It's not an attempt to inform God of why he should do this. God knows. He is just calling in faith, one word, and the man is healed. I've noticed, been a pastor, what, 20, 20 some years now, almost 30 years. I've noticed that Christians oftentimes are pretty wussy when it comes to prayer. It makes them nervous, especially when they pray for healing or they pray for God to do something. Lord, I just want to ask you if it's not too much hassle, 
if it's your will, please work through the doctors and the medicine and the treatment to heal this person. It's as if we're afraid that God can't do it or that he won't do it and we'll be embarrassed. He'll be embarrassed. Our faith will be embarrassed. Maybe we will believe less. So we always give God an out in our prayers. Not everybody, but I've noticed it's fairly common. What if we pray for healing and nothing happens? Oh, my goodness. Where is your faith? If God is real, then his power is more astonishing and magnificent, can address any ill, is beyond anything we can imagine. And it's why you'll sometimes hear me say when, when I'm part of a prayer group, be bold, be biblical, be brief. Be bold, no qualifications, no explanation, no ifs, ands, and but. God is real. His power is real. Claim it. Don't fuss around. Claim it. What did Jesus do here? Be opened. Boom. Be biblical. Jesus shows us the kinds of things to pray for, the kinds of prayers that will be answered. He doesn't pray for red Ferraris or lottery tickets or Christmas presents or ponies. What does he pray for? He prays for the ills of the world. He prays for people to be healed and restored. He prays for redemption. He prays in the darkness to bring in light. By the way, the best place to look as an example of how to pray is the Lord's Prayer. We prayed it today. He is showing us there the pattern of prayer. Be brief. You do not have to explain things to God. He knows far more than you do about everything that's happening. All you need is to claim God's promises. Be bold. Be biblical. Be brief. I could add one other thing. Be where the need is greatest. Miracles of healing happen where they are needed. It is where God confronts the darkness, where things are hopeless, where people are desperate, where there is no other option. You should expect God's power and prayers to shine brightest in the darkest parts of the world, the most hopeless places, the places of greatest hurt and ill. That's where Christian prayer is needed. That's where God needs to show up, and he does. It's the reason, by the way, that mission trips are oftentimes not so much about how you help people, but about restoring your faith in God. It is only when you see the magnitude of suffering in this world on a missions trip, the hopelessness and darkness and need, that you also see the power and the magnitude of prayer and faith in God. You don't have to be in the church long before you start hearing these astonishing stories about what has happened in other parts of the world. I think it's because there are parts of the world that are very dark right now, and that's where God is at work. Verse 36, 35. At this, the ears were opened. His tongue was loosened, and he began to speak plainly. 
This is a fulfillment of prophecy. 700 years, seven centuries before Jesus shows up, Isaiah made a promise to Israel. In fact, to the world. He said this. This is Isaiah 34 and 35. Come near, you nations, and listen. Pay attention, you peoples. Let the earth hear and all that is in it. Be strong. Do not fear. Your God will come. He will come to save you. Then the eyes of the blind will be opened, and the ears of the deaf, deaf, deaf unstopped. Then will the lame leap like a deer, and the mute tongue shout for joy. Notice that last part. Mute tongue shout for joy. Jesus is good news. His presence will be celebrated. And notice this is not just healing for Israel. This is the nations, all the earth. It's the promise that the gospel is not limited to the Jewish people. The gospel is for everybody. Jesus is for everybody. Why is this story here? Well, remember, Jesus is teaching his disciples. He's also teaching us. He is fulfilling prophecy. That means he's fulfilling the story of the Bible. It's one story. It's God's story. And he's showing us that this story is unfolding just as promised. What is the story of the Bible? Well, it basically has three acts. God creates a good and perfect world, a very good world. Act two, there is a fall, a rebellion, and the relationship between God and human beings and the world is broken, and death and darkness enter in. And then three, redemption. God, starting with Abraham, creates a holy people who will receive Christ and will make him accessible and understandable to the world. That is the purpose of Israel, to receive and interpret the Messiah to the world. That's why God gets so upset when they don't do that. Creation, fall, Redemption. That's the biblical story. And it's the reason that this fulfillment is good news. Because it shows that God is at work. The story is unfolding just as he promised. Jesus commanded them not to tell anyone. But the more he did so, the more they kept talking about it. People were overwhelmed with amazement. He has done everything well, they said. He even makes the deaf hear and the mute speak. It's like uh, a champagne bottle that wants to pop. Jesus is the fizz, the gospel, the good news. But it will be the disciples, the Christian church, who are like the champagne cork and will be launched into the world who will bring the fizz with them, who are going to share the gospel to the Gentiles, who are going to explode a gospel explosion beyond Israel, just as actually historically happened. Jesus said to the disciples, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, 
Go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. That is the trajectory of the Christian church. That is what the disciples are being trained and prepared for. Now, there's a final point I want to make, and uh, unfortunately, I have to share something of my sordid past to make this point. But there is a point, so stick with it. It's pretty unwholesome. Um, when I was at seminary, I had uh, an internship in New York for a year. It was a requirement of my, uh, my course. And I came up to Redeemer, Manhattan. This was in the early 90s. And uh, they weren't really ready for me. Um, they didn't have any money. They actually ended up paying me $12,000 for the whole year. And living in New York on $12,000 is quite hard. However, a family in the church donated their apartment to me. Their daughter was uh, in Europe, and they gave me this beautiful apartment in Battery Park. It was so beautiful, it looked directly at the Statue of Liberty. It was right on the river. You could see the Verrazano Bridge could see the twinkling lights at night of New Jersey's chemical industry. Very beautiful. And it was just, it was like being on a vacation in that apartment. And on my birthday, I threw a party. Uh, I invited all my friends from seminary to come up, and there were all the people of the church, and it was by far the best party that I have ever had. I loved it. Everybody brought champagne, we all dressed up, we listened to Sinatra, it was gorgeous. It was really wonderful. Um, there was so much champagne that the champagne corks, this is why I bring up the story, the champagne corks did damage. They were popping off everywhere, knocking things over, hitting people. And so we decided there was a little balcony in front of the window. We decided we we're going to open on the balcony. So there we are, Christians drinking champagne, shooting off champagne corks, seeing actually if we could get them in the Hudson River. And as we're doing this, they would, a lot of them fell short, and we, we could hear... Uh, somebody's shouting. And it turned out there was a homeless man on the bench underneath the apartment, and one of the champagne corks fell on him, and he shouted up to us, you know, stop shooting champagne corks at me. All fun and games. I didn't think much of it. But when I got back to seminary at the end of the year, the story had got back that Tony, living high on the hog up in New York, was shooting champagne corks at homeless people. And it was not a great reputation to have. So what's my point? Well, by most standards, drinking champagne, firing corks at homeless people, partying with the beautiful people up in New York in this gorgeous apartment, is the antithesis of Christianity, right? We're all about homeless people and the poor and the suffering, the, the, uh, the ones that are sick, the dark places of the world, self-denial, and that's what Jesus did. He did it very well everywhere he went. He healed people. He restored people. He gave people hope. He made them so grateful they couldn't stop talking about him. He did everything well. And he told his disciples, showed his disciples, what they should be about in their ministry in his name and what we should be about. And he did everything well. Which brings us to the story. 
Creation, fall, redemption. Three acts, right? But there's actually a fourth act. It's called glorification. It's when we will join Christ, join the family of God forever in heaven, where God and humanity will be reunited forevermore. The book of Revelation talks about it. Hallelujah, for our Lord God Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and be glad and give him glory. For the wedding of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. He's talking about the church. Blessed are those who are invited to the wedding supper of the Lamb. In a moment, we're going to go to the Lord's table. And oftentimes I say, this is where you bring your need. This is where you bring your hunger. This is where you bring your emptiness to be filled. But this is something else, too. This is the future breaking in. This is a glimpse of future glory because this is a feast set by Christ. And therefore, yes, we should be about helping those that need help, about praying for the sick, about clothing and housing those who are needy. Yes, we should be in the dark places of the world, but there should be a joy with us, a joy that we have been invited to this celebration, to this feast. It's not champagne and caviar, but it is bread and wine. Said by Christ, a glimpse of our future together, a glimpse of what Jesus did for us. He did everything well, so well, that sinners like you and me are invited to the great feast of the world right here. Let's pray.